I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, from Ireland, novelist, playwright, and poet Sebastian Barry. His 2008 book, The Secret Scripture, was a breakout success. His latest novel is longlisted for the Booker. Sebastian Barry's 2008 novel, The Secret Scripture, not only won a slew of awards, including Britain's Costa Prize for Best Book, but it also sold almost a million copies in more than 30 countries. The Secret Scripture is about Roseanne, a hundred-year-old woman who was forcibly confined in a mental hospital for most of her life. Doesn't sound like such promising material, but her voice is so strong, distinctive, and I hesitate to say it, but poetical. Not in any precious way, but in being both vivid and economical. The story harks back to the 1920s and 30s in Western Ireland in County Sligo, set against an intensely political backdrop. And, as with virtually all of Sebastian Barry's writing, the starting point was someone in his own family. In his novels, plays, even in his poetry, Barry creates a richly invented world peopled by his relatives, or often stories he's heard about his family. For instance, his grandfather in his 2014 novel, The Temporary Gentleman. Or, in Days Without End, his grandfather's uncle, who emigrated to America as a teenager in the mid-19th century to escape the Great Famine. As critic Robert McCrum described it, Days Without End has the majestic inevitability of the best fiction, at once historical, but also contemporary in its concerns. Sebastian Barry was born in Dublin in 1955. His father was a poet and architect, a drinking man, as he said. His mother was a well-known actress, Joan O'Hara. Barry studied at Trinity College Dublin and then traveled in Europe and the United States. When he returned to Ireland, he got involved with the Abbey Theatre and also published novels and children's books. In 2017, his novel Days Without End won the UK's Walter Scott Prize and the Costa Award for Best Book of the Year, making him the only novelist to win the Costa twice. His latest novel, Old God's Time, is longlisted for this year's Booker Prize. I've spoken to Sebastian Barry a number of times over the years. He's always entertaining, thoughtful, and candid. Today, you'll hear our first conversation from 2008. The central character of your novel, The Secret Scripture, is Roseanne. Uh, She's about... A hundred years old, she's lived for most of her adult life in mental institutions in the west of Ireland. Roseanne, as I understand, is based on someone in your own family. Who was she? Well, that's a that would be a wonderful question to be able to answer. She 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 remains unknown and forgotten. All that remained of her was a rumor of beauty, as she says herself in her book. Somebody who had worked in my great uncle's dance band as the piano player, and she made the mistake possibly of marrying him but whatever happened 
the family conspired against her to commit her in sometime in the 1940s and she disappeared from view so much so that uh, her name wasn't even remembered when my mother first spoke about her to me she just called referred to her as that woman or your woman as we say here in Ireland so uh, it was a person I particularly wanted to try and fetch back even by these devious and untruthful means of a novel for that very reason that she'd been so completely erased. Roseanne's forced incarceration is something terrible and and, and obviously real. I mean, it happened. Yeah. And there are all kinds of circumstances, fate that come into play here that, that you've invented. But there do seem to be these two overriding, colluding forces, the church and the politically powerful. Can you talk a, a little about that? Well, I think for somebody like... Um, I mean, these are fictional people. I, I, I often make the mistake of referring to them as if they were real, because they have their bases in, in real life. But I think, my, for instance, my great-uncle, who did actually become mayor of Sligo, which is a little dark, rainy town in the western seaboard of Ireland, he did have ambitions in the new country. And certainly, I think his mother did have ambitions for him. So it was very familial, very personal politics of not being deemed suitable for this marriage and therefore somebody to be got rid of. As regards the the character of Father Gaunt, who I suppose represents the Catholic Church, I mean, to me, he, he always seemed to me in himself a tragic figure in the sense that only 10 or 15 years before this time, which would be the 20s, such priests might have been out on the front lines in the First World War, at, as, as is in a priest I wrote about in a form, previous book, A Long, Long Way, tending to the dying and really being very wonderful and very heroic and probably deeply traumatised, just like the men. But here we have some years later where independence has been established or there's a hope for an establishment of independence where a country has been made. And I think we made the error, maybe an understandable error, in thinking, oh, now we can have a holy Catholic Ireland because obviously that was the great war and struggle of two or three hundred years in Europe between Protestantism and Catholicism. But uh, Wolf Tone, one of our revolutionaries, had hoped for a country that would include everything, Protestant, Catholic, dissenter, Jewish, everything. And that seemed to be forgotten in that moment. So you had people like Father Gaunt, who I think were tragic figures in the sense that in other times they wouldn't have been so consumed by power and destroyed by power. And I think it's... Uh, far from he he would he would maintain that it's Roseanne's soul who is, which is imperiled and destroyed, but I, I mean I think for us reading him we would consider him to be the man in danger, so that's why I think that's his tragedy. I was always hoping that Father Gaunt would do something redeeming, uh, and he didn't seem to get a chance to do so. I hope he did a few decades later when he was whatever he was auxiliary bishop in Dublin or whatever wherever he ended up, but not for Roseanne I'm afraid. You're awfully sympathetic, which is why you're the writer. <laughs> but <laughs> well, she is too, though, isn't she? She's very, she's very careful. She she admonishes herself. She says she must be even-handed when she talks about when she writes about these people. She must be fair, because I think Roseanne is a writer in that sense. I mean, she is an isolated person. She's living in a room at the top of a building. Few people come to see her. It is the actual quintessential writer's life. And she is trying to, she doesn't want to go back to an account of her life in order to accuse. She just wants it there so that in somehow, just before she dies, because she is nearly 100, perhaps is 100, she may leave an account of herself that is, in a sense, 
uh, her own apprehension of immortality, even though rather wonderfully she doesn't want anyone to see it and she hides it under the floorboards. But almost despite the the sympathy that the two authors at play here, you and Roseanne, <laughs> he does terribly cruel things because, I mean, you say it's, it's, his tragedy is that he is corrupted or consumed by power, but his power ends up destroying lives. He's given the power. I mean, it's the same. It's a, it is an old story in all countries' histories, but especially in Ireland. You know, it is, in a way, the history of collaboration in Ireland. And this is a very particular specious and dangerous form of collaboration where people like Father Gaunt were collaborating with a sort of political ideal and it undid them as much as their victims. And yes, I think he is cruel to Roseanne. Not only that, but because Roseanne's psychiatrist, Dr. Green, well, he hasn't read Roseanne's account and he's trying to find out why she was committed because he wants to see if she can be released back into the community because the asylum is 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 closing down. He has, he finds a sort of deposition that Father Gaunt has written years before, which would have been used against her in order to not only have her committed, but to annul her marriage. Because I think this is the thing that has hurt her most, that it isn't that she was divorced, because there was no divorce in Ireland, but it, it was put to her that her marriage simply had never existed. And to do that, of course, you had to go to Rome. And to do that, you had to have fairly, not huge reasons, but some reasons to do so. And Father Gaunt engages in that. And what he's done in, the, in his deposition, he is pulled about her story in order to serve this purpose, which in some ways is, is a very writerly thing to do as well. Because I, I was rereading a lot of Dickens and, and Hardy while I was writing this book. And you can see the way Dickens is tweaking and, and encouraging and pulling things to make certain things happen in the plot of his stories, which I found actually fascinating. And uh, in that sense, they're all authors. You know, Dr. Green, obviously, is writing his commonplace book of this matter, and she's writing it. And also, Father Gaunt has written it. So he, he thought he was engaged in a good purpose. He's going to take away this person whom he's accusing of nymphomania. But really what he's accusing of her is being beautiful. And being beautiful must have been a very dangerous thing to be in Ireland at that time. I, I just, I understand him because we we were given plenty of time to understand men like him. Because even in my childhood, such priests still existed. I mean, even when I came to be a writer and I, we were doing a little series of passion plays and the person who was in charge of programming, who happened to be a priest, wrote to me and said, but your version of the passion is blasphemous. And I thought, what a terrible idea for a priest to be in charge of religious programming in a country, do you know? And it, that again, it was, that's not a criticism of him, it's just a thing we, we knew was there. And, and of course, all that has been blown to smithereens by all the terrible revelations and of, of, of misery and, and abuse of children which we also were sort of aware of when we were small, too, you know. It just these things had to be said out in the open. So it's a kind of... It, it, Father Gaunt, for me, is as lost in history, as marred in history as any of the other characters. But yes, you're right. I mean, I can't deny it. He is, he, he is a wicked young man in many ways. I don't want to just sort of pick on him, but it, it wasn't just when you were a child. I mean, it was when you were a grown-up in, in the sense that uh, the, the power of the church and the necessity of the church to intervene because civil divorce wasn't available until just over 10 years ago. Exactly. 
I mean, that's an important point because it's not just... I mean, it's one of the reasons I write, I think, is because I was a child of an Irish family and I was always looking for these supposed outlawed people in the family, but I was a child of an Irish family in an epoch of secrecy where the for the the very walls of the house um became impenetrable as if they were houses without windows and doors that the child could neither enter nor exit from and i grew up concluding that there's nothing that cannot be said there's nothing that shouldn't be said out loud because as soon as you choose an area for secrecy terrible terrible things happen inside that silence so sometimes, you know, I've got into trouble. I wrote a play a few years ago called Hinterland, which was supposedly about one of our prime ministers, but in fact it was really about my father. But I got into serious trouble for doing that here in Ireland. But the real reason is it because the the the, the dangers of secrecy, even ne- necessary secrecy, even discretion, and even civil behaviour, can be far greater than the benefits of keeping silent. I want to come back to to some of that in in, in relation to the the wall around the family, but just to stay with uh, Roseanne for for a moment, uh, as the title of your novel, The Secret Scripture, suggests, Roseanne has kept things hidden through her long life that, that she, as you say, would like to look at now, but she doesn't want to tell her story to her psychiatrist, even though they have a fairly friendly relationship. Why not? Well, she's tempted, isn't she? She's when in little part of the book where she's itemizing her happiness, which she thinks is a very important thing to do, and she's writing about herself as a young waitress in the Cafe Cairo in Sligo, and she's just 17 or so, and she's having a lovely life, and she's swimming, and, and she suddenly thinks, oh, maybe she'd like to tell Dr. Green this. Uh, but then she says, no, 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 because he'd interpret it, which is dangerous. And she doesn't want to be interpreted. In other words, in a way, she doesn't want her book published. She doesn't want it performed. She doesn't want comment or opinion upon it. She simply wants to complete the act of writing, which, when you've been writing for about 30 years, as I have, you, you keep coming back to the realization that that is the joy of, of, of working, as John McGarten would use that word, joy. He said, what's the point if you're not writing for joy or reading for joy? And, and that, that is that for me contains the, the joy, the making of it it's, itself, so that I understand what, why she is hiding it under the floorboards. Roseanne says, uh, I would love now to leave an account some kind of brittle and honest-minded history of myself. Why brittle? Well, she is a woman in an asylum. One, one of the... Um, and a lot of these things about asylums I would have had from my friend Ivor Brown, who who's now in his 70s, but he, he reveled once in the title of Chief Psychiatrist of Ireland, and, which is a wonderful title, I think. And he he talked to me about records, you know, and nothing seems to survive in these institutions. I mean, it was part of their secrecy that they seem to have trained the mice and the, the wood lice and all the rest to eat the records. And she knows that anything she makes in that place, anything she puts down on paper, is going to become sear and dry. Or like those things found for a moment in, in Egyptian tombs, that as soon as you breathe on them, they fall apart. Papyrus or whatever. That nothing is going to have any substantiality. And yet for her, it's enough, the act of writing, the act of using this miserable old biro that she's got and putting it down on paper. Biro being a, a brand of uh, ch- cheap ballpoint. Yes. Do you not have that 
magical word. <laughs> I give I'm, it to I'm, you. I'm familiar with it, but I <laughs> offer it to Canon. <laughs> Accuracy and honesty are paramount to Rosanna. She tells the story, and I guess you would say, "What's the point if you're not going to be honest?" But she emphasizes the importance of this. Why? Why is that so crucial for her now? Well, honesty, honesta, and sincerity, which I think means sincere, that's in the selling of Roman statues, they used to sell them sincere, which is without wax. They didn't fill in the cracks to make them look better than they were. I think she is honest and sincere. Um, I think she has a passionate regard for her story as a construct, though. And she, I don't think she's particularly looking for truth. She's looking for the engine of the story of her story, as it is. And I'm not sure that always involves factual accuracy. Doctor Green, towards the end of the book, says, because he has Doctor Green, Doctor uh, Father Gaunt's thing to compare to it. He says, well, it's possible that a lot of what she says can't be remembered correctly, can't be factually correct, but he prefers her history or her untruth, because it radiates health. And this is something to do with honesty. My own mother was, in the normal way of things, but of course it's always impossibly tragic to the son or the child. My own mother was dying last year. And she had spent, and a lot of my work comes from the story, story she told me as a child. Indeed, this whole period is from my mother. Anything I know about Sligo in the 1930s and 40s is certainly not from my own experience, obviously. But she, she invested in her own story all her life in a very magical, powerful way. She was an actress in the Abbey Theatre. She had had an, a very demanding and, and barbed and bladed childhood. And this is part of her method of surviving it, but not just surviving it, you know, as a kind of kind of broken-backed victim, but as a victor of her own story. And I think there's something of, of that in Roseanne. You know, the very unfurling of the narrative, the very throwing it out on the ground, the very unraveling of it, just letting it roll out in front of her, is, uh, is an honest act. And in my, to my mind, and what's why, although it's quite a dark story, to write it wasn't in any way frightening or a chore, because I admired the courage that she showed in doing that. It's just as I admired my own mother's courage. Although, <laughs> nearly quoting a Brecht play there, but I, I also <laughs> noticed that, which my mother actually longed to play, but she never did. But um, I also noticed that towards the end of her life, the part of my mother's history that was invested in most strongly, maybe was also told against her in the end, because she couldn't include certain other histories and truths and facts. And I think that's also why Roseanne doesn't want it read or seen. And a curious thing was that when I was starting to write the book in 2006, my mother became ill. And I had chosen this form, and, and it was about... Roseanne, and it was about her childhood in the twenty in the twenties, thirties. And my mother told me that she'd been sitting in her car every evening when she wasn't working on the soap that she did here in RTE. In fact, um, and she was writing a secret account of her childhood. Uh, and this was kind of this was obviously quite shocking to me, 
But uh, Ivor Brown, the wonderful chief psychiatrist of Ireland, would explain that as everything connecting in when you're doing a book and when you're alive. It all connects up together. But she, in fact, had been dealing with these very same characters, not about Roseanne, but about her own childhood in Sligo. But I felt, at the end of the day, and I think Roseanne suspects, that if she'd had full commentary, you know, you couldn't criticise, you couldn't offer a comment or opinion upon my mother's story because it would hurt her too much. And I think that's what Roseanne fears, is the hurt of somebody discussing something written and therefore completed. Did you ever get to read your mother's account? I, I left it severely alone for about nine months, and just in recent times. Uh, I mean, I did read it. It, it, it was it was incredibly sad, but in, wonderful also to read it. And Because um, it was her grandparents who'd been the tailor and the seamstress in the Sligo Lunatic Asylum, where Roseanne is initially put and who are in the book in fictional form. And um, I, th everything to do with the book became caught up with this strange adventure of realizing that it was no longer that safe, because my, my, we'd worked together in the theater, it was no longer that relationship. It wasn't the friendship we'd had. It wasn't even the kind of trouble we'd had in the last couple of years of her life, the kind of misunderstandings that everyone has, seems to have to go through. But it was this primal relationship that I suddenly, suddenly came at me so clear and so fierce, which started really when I, the hospital, you know, they ask you to wash your mother's clothes because if you don't, she won't have any clean clothes. So you're bringing them home and in a sort of Yeatsian way, you're washing them and folding them for your mother and you're bringing them in. And, and I suddenly, oh, I know what this is. I'm her son. And, and every older lady in that place that I looked at, I realized they were all my mothers, or and I was all of their son, if you know what I mean. Which brought me back to another time when Ivor Brown brought me up to his asylum in Dublin when it was on fire. There was a wing on fire. And I went up with him, and we went into this ward that you wouldn't normally see. And it was a ward of old, older women lying completely silent and comatose in the beds with the lights of the city below these great Georgian windows. And there they were. And it suddenly struck me that these were the mothers, the grandmothers, the great aunts of the town, and no one knew they were there. And it was that, that feeling in, informed the book, that, you know, people in asylums or people seemingly in extremity or, or dying or whatever... They are our people. We are all son to, it's all son to all mother, or, or whatever the relationship is, you know, that this is a part of what it is to be alive. And you, you probably knew that already, and I'm sure most people knew that already, but it was news to me. How was it that you saw the fire in the asylum in, in the first place? It was as easy and accidental as you like. We were, I was just at dinner in his house, and the phone call came that, a wing was on fire, so naturally he leaped up, since he was the, the the minder of all these people. And he said, look, I'll be back in a couple of hours. But he said, if you want to come, just come. So we got in his uh, Honda car. Ivor, I have to say, is the worst driver who ever lived. There was this great psychiatrist. He drives straight through red lights. He pays no heed to anything, civic things like that. So I don't know how we got to the asylum alive, but we did. And 
And, uh, you know, the first thing he pointed out was the men. He said, there's my men. I said, what do you mean? And there were all these old chaps in these black suits, do you know? Um, he called them his men. And they were just people, just some of the older men of the asylum. And they looked so like all the characters you would see in any Irish play, you know, <laughs> since 1910. <laughs> they could have gone straight on to the Abbey stage in any decade you like. So I realized, you know, these were important people. These are the people that we've been writing about all these years. And our mind has been on other things, you know, middle-class prosperity and all the rest of it. But these people are actually hold the news that stays news, as Ezra Pound says. They are our literature. And in that sense, they are the kind of um, guidebooks to, to whatever there is of the Irish soul remaining. As you mentioned, your mother was an actress, uh, the, uh, Joan O'Hara. Mm. What, what kind of relationship did you and she have? Well... Um, you know, my mother is, I, I she was, I, you know, I, as I speak to you, I just get this image of a garden and, and she is the bonfire at the bottom of the garden. There's always conflagration going on. When I was a little fellow, she said she put a pencil in my hand. She didn't know whether she wanted me to paint or to write, but she just put it in. So, I mean, she was absolutely, I mean, like everybody, she was... For, for all those years, she's she's your your entire world. She's your entire narrative, and and she put herself faithful and fierce to that task. Although I don't think she particularly enjoyed it, because in this book I read that she had written this little book, which was called Dear Mister Bergman, because she her great wish was to that Bergman would send for her, <laughs> and she she'd be in one of his films. But uh, in this book, she said, she describes the happiest time in her life was when she was in London rehearsing a play in the Royal Court Theatre, which is a very famous new writing theatre in, in London. And um, and I realised that that was the summer she had left my sister and me down in Wicklow with a great aunt. You know, and I just thought, oh. And, and she said, you know, that young children were, were lovely, but there was just so much work and it got in the way of one's ambition so much. And these were all truthful statements. Do you know, but I could see suddenly that, you know, that we weren't the huge priority that I think we'd always imagined ourselves to be. And I think in that sense, my mother was able to be a very useful shifting sands, um, particularly from, you know, she, a great admirer she was of Wilkie Collins and the woman in white and all that. She loved ghost stories. She gave us, she told M.R. James, never mind Henry James, M.R. James was the man she, she worshipped. Do you know, she was a huge figure. I mean, she was a huge personality. Everybody who worked with her adored her and I don't think got very close to her. Um, to to lose her was, was like losing uh, a country or something, you know, um, and you have to get a new passport and live somewhere else. It, it, no matter how demanding it was and no matter how difficult it was. And, you know, if um, I could be giving out about her a bit, I'm sure, because big personalities are are sometimes deeply inconvenient to a child and, and to a grown-up person. But nevertheless, I, you know, I wouldn't have missed that circus. And in fact, living with her was as if we had run away at finally to, the, to join the circus, you know, and we were not going home because home was the circus. And the circus was my mother. When you were growing up, and she was, she was often away performing. Was that hard for you? I don't think we knew it was hard because um, because it's what we had. We were the children of an actor. I mean, in the evening, around five o'clock, 
if she wasn't, uh, yeah, if she wasn't rehearsing all day. In those days, you could rehearse all day and play in the evening in the Abbey. It was like a civil service theatre almost. But she would go off. My father would go back off to town himself. So we were rattling around in this huge old house out in this, uh, beside the sea in Monkstown, myself and my sister, and eventually my much younger brother and, and our first cousin. And we did li- I think we did live... Um, a slightly gas life, you know, if you know that book. And it kind of isolated because the house had a lot of rooms and we all had our separate rooms. And sometimes it was as if, um, you know, you mightn't see each other for a while. And when you <laughs> saw each other on the stairs, you might be inclined to sort of shake hands and introduce yourself. Oh, yes, I, I am Sebastian. I am your son or whatever. The house uh, was that big? It was kind of a big old Victorian house, you know, I'm exaggerating slightly. Although I'm reminded instantly of the story of of poor old Yeats coming to his gates in Rathfarnham, where he lived, and seeing a little girl at the gates getting off the bus. And he said to her, and who are you, little girl? And she said, I'm your daughter, Anne. (laughs) So maybe that's uh, an Irish thing, I don't know. (laughs) You have to keep introducing yourself to your family. (laughs) Now, you saw your mother perform on stage as a boy. What was that like? Well, it's, it, it gave rise to an error that I still... I never got over, and I, I think I cherish it now more than anything else, because, well, we lived out in Monkstown, which was about an hour away from town, so you had to go into town, which was an adventure in itself. In those days, you know, the city had the lights on O'Connell Street and all these things that were wonders to children. So going into town was a it was a great adventure. But she brought me in as often as she needed. I suppose when she had to, she brought me into the Abbey and she gave she'd give me to Lily Shanley, the wonderful front of house person. So I knew the front of house people very well and I knew the doorman very well. In fact I wrote my first tiny, tiny play about Al the doorman years and years ago. And the first time she did it, she she gave me to Lily, and Lily put me in the seat. Maybe I was six or seven, and she was in. Actually, she was in Yeats's Kathleen Houlihan. So, as you may know, in that play, um, she was a very young actress at that time, very beautiful young actress. But she was playing an old woman, and when she came out on stage, I was I knew it was her, but I thought, well, oh, she's an old woman now. Uh, how are we going to get home? on the bus. And what does this mean now for me? Everything has changed. And at the end of the play, I don't know, I can't remember the last line, something like, um, yes, I saw an old woman, but she had the walk of a queen or whatever it was. And I, I thought there was some hope in that line for me because I thought, well, maybe, you know, it's a young queen and we're going to be okay. And I was extremely relieved. I remember it so well going around to the dressing room. So Al, in fact, bringing me around to the dressing room to find her young again. But I think as a playwright, you know, there's a, as a nascent playwright, I never got over that. And sometimes when I see productions of plays, in particular that play, The Steward of Christendom, which was played by Donald McCann, who was our greatest living actor, who has since is since deceased. But um, at the end of that play, I, 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 he was so changed by the by his performance, he had become another person. And and it was the same moment I think when I was six or seven in the theatre, watching him in the theatre, and I realised actually that something does happen something had happened a little bit beyond explanation otherwise theater couldn't be the the most ancient and most cherished form of literature that there is probably predating the very writing down of things you know, and predating homo sapiens sapiens you know poor old homo erectus was trying to put on plays i have a feeling <laughs> 
Your mother also acted in, in work that you wrote. I mean, how did that feel to see her as a character that, that you'd written? Well, I, I regret saying to her, we were doing a play called Prayers of Shirkin, which was I actually also had my wife in it before we were married. And I regret saying to her, I said, please don't talk in, in rehearsal. <laughs> because she never stopped talking. She, she would fill the rehearsal with this beautiful Joan O'Hara voice. And, and I don't know why I said it, because I was young and foolish and ridiculous. And I said, please don't talk. And she didn't talk. So in a way, we didn't really have a rehearsal together. And, and we did another play uh, again. And I think she found it too terrifying, actually. It was more her than me, you know, to be premiering new work, which is always so dangerous. I mean, what a foolish profession to be in. Uh, putting on new pl plays that you've just written because nobody knows what's going to happen and it's it's very stressful for everybody and uh, Ali, my wife, said, you know, the stress my mother went through uh, opening Prayers of Shurikin was just was just incredible but I, I mean, the courage of actors the courage of Roseanne the courage of actors going out there is a very, very inspiring thing Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. You were saying that the the last while with your mother, that things got more complicated. Can can you say why? Well, um, you know, there's always a fan, isn't there? And there's always plenty of terrible stuff to hit it eventually. I'm 53 now, so we had many, many years together. And uh, she was only 25 when I was born. Um, my brother was 13 years younger than me. And there was a strange year, 1999. I think we all had a strange year that year. It was the year that was going to be followed by a new millennium, a new decade, and we were going to have peace. Do you remember President Clinton saying we were going to have peace? And we sort of believed we would. So, uh, But I think everyone was very troubled by a new millennium. Everyone always is. And it was a funny year. And my brother, who was a very brilliant man, who was at Harvard doing astrophysics, who was doing artificial intelligence in the Imperial College in London. He's just, he was a genius. And I must say, when I saw that film, The Beautiful Mind, I have to say I wept my way right through that because it was too close to home. I, you know, my brother became unwell in that year. And the worst thing you can do, I think, is when somebody becomes unwell like that, is, is, is have them, strangely enough, living with the mother. And in fact, I took advice on it, and, and the person giving the advice said, no, I don't think that's a good idea, because what happens is that the mother usually becomes famished and, and thinned and, and possibly even uh, impoverished by, by this. And I didn't understand that. I thought, that's ridiculous. I couldn't possibly, you know, my beautiful brother's not going to... Everything will be fine, and she has to look after him. You know, that was my error, really. And, um, and But she did, And but seven or eight years later, sure enough, she was... She was ill, worn out, impoverished by the thing. And um, that, that, my efforts to disconnect her, you know, in the last few years of her life from that, just to save her, really, 
But you know, we don't want to be saved from everything. Some things we choose, and that's something she chose to do. But I was very, I was really trying to, to dissuade her. I was really trying to rewrite her narrative, but she wouldn't have it rewritten. It was as if I, that's why Dr. Green in The Secret Scripture is so, so useful to me as, as a writer, because he, in a sense he's standing in for me. He's trying to help Roseanne, you know, and while I was writing this book, I was trying to help her. But trying, you know, trying to help somebody can be the cruelest thing you can do. And I often felt, you know, that that was the, the source of our, our difficulty, that I was trying to change her narrative and she couldn't let it be changed. So that's why in the last couple of years we, we were... Well, she hadn't really spoken to me for about a year and a half. She'd ring me up occasionally, desperate for money or whatever, and, and she would be surprised then, you know, when, when she'd be helped because I think she had convinced herself of various things. So it wasn't... I don't think she was particularly well... I don't think any of us are going to be particularly well in our last few years, so it's nothing unusual. But it did create, you know, um, a gap between us. Uh, what leapt the gap, of course, is finally when somebody gets away, when they're allowed to finish their, their narrative, and they finish it in the way they've chosen, and she died. And I was in Greece when it happened, on a beach in Santa Maria, on the island of Paros, which she loved. And I was with my son, Toby. And uh, he was just digging in the sand in that eternal way an eight-year-old child does. And it was very idyllic and very beautiful. And the sky was enormous and wide and blue. And just for a moment, uh, Joan O'Hara was there filling the sky. And she wasn't saying, uh, you know, um, this is terrible, I'm dead, and this is awful, I'm suffering. She was not saying that at all. She was saying more, look what I can do, Uh, I'm off. To, you know, I'm off it to see the stars, and there's a sort of sense of freedom, and that's really what brought me, what reconciled me completely to the whole thing was the sense that she had got away like Jesse James. She'd got down to her Mexico. How was your brother? My brother, um, my brother, who whom I loved and adored as a child, and one of the sweetest creatures that ever lived, really sweet boy uh, he has disappeared I don't know where he is he may be in Canada actually I don't know there's a way in which Roseanne says that um, she needs to write and tell her story and her psychiatrist Dr. Green says that he writes to save himself and I just wondered if there, there there's there's an element of uh of the author in, in there, I think absolutely. I mean, that's why that's why I was I'm indebted to Dr. Green. He's literally thinking on his feet, sitting down. You know what I mean? He's he, something is coming at him, and he's having to work it out as he goes along. So it's kind of um, fast philosophy. You know, he's enduring fast history, which is what we endure in, our, in Ireland these days, anyway. Uh, and he's trying to get some you know because the great struggle in Ireland has always been not you know how how to hate we've been good at that or how to be at war or how to suffer or how to endure calamity we've done all that but really the greatest question that every century in Ireland has asked is how how to live and that's the question that Dr. Green is asking that's why his friend says to him you know even though you're about to retire you know you're nearly 64 whatever in many ways you're still starting out and and I think this is this is our you know one of our greatest quality as a creature, is that just as you can write a new book and just as you can write a new play, just as you can leave 
a great success behind you or a great failure, you can always start, you're always allowed to start again. Sebastian Barry, families are central to your work. Actual members of your own family are often the starting point for your writing, whether it's plays or poems or novels. To look another moment at at your family, your father is a poet and an architect. Mm -hmm. What was he like when you were growing up? I think he was, um, again, quite, seemed to us quite an epic figure, uh, as, as, as people do to children. Um, I think we, we part invented him. I think we partly wrote him as children. There were suggestions of his nature, but we invented him to some degree simply because he wasn't there a lot you know, in the way of the fathers of that generation. I mean, he, he was a curious character in that he was part of that Dublin bohemian world, another lost world of Ireland. So that somebody like my, my father was, was saying there is no history, there is no family, there is no love, there is, no, the, the, everything has reached an ending. Um, and of course that's vastly inconvenient to a child who's totally in love with everyone, including that person, and who wants, who who feels the presence of his great aunts or whatever as as of gods. So, you know, the, the palpable untruth of it was so enormous. And he was a gifted young man, and he got an architectural scholarship, and he went and did that, but he was building buildings in Ireland at a time when no one had any money to for design. Do you know, it was soul-destroying. I think he used to look across the Atlantic to those incredible buildings we'd see going up in New York, where you'd have these wonderful steps going up with trees planted, you know, these amazing buildings. Or there's buildings in France, in Paris, that started to be made. And, of course, there was none of that going on in Ireland. Uh, so he missed all that. But anyway... You know, he just possibly, from a modern point of view, he possibly wasn't there enough. I think also um, was, you know, in his own way, I mean, we all are slightly destructive, but I think he did have a destructive streak in him. But I think, you know, I have to be grateful for everything. Uh, I mean, in a way, I refuse to be ungrateful because um, the pretty past that you're brought by the people who for a time are in charge of you, in a way, they never will be again. And of course, I have my own children now, so I'm in charge of them. But that pretty past is what what forces you, in a way, to to have, have strategies, to do things that you would never have done normally, which is like writing books and, and, and poems and plays. You, you've written a poem called The Trousers. Could, could you read that? I will. I'll just find it here. See, the problem with the problem for sons, the problem for us all, is that um, despite everything, there remains that connection that I was talking about. You do not, when my mother was unwell, it, it reestablishes itself. It's just the irrefutable evidence, and I think it's why, you know, if there are gods or God, that, that we're not expected to be incredibly perfect or incredibly good or anything. It's because these loves we have seem to override those questions. Although I read somewhere the, an observation you made about fathers. You mm. said there's a, a giant stature to all our fathers, mm. uh, but that you were fascinated 
the moment that you sniffed out the culpability. Mm. Well, I th- I wonder, you know, with the Stuart Christendom, the, the man was the police in the Imperial Police Force. I thought I'd be finding a demon. But um, that father must be loved by the son. But anyway, this is called The Trousers. And this was about a little moment when I bumped into my father, as I have done maybe three or four times in the last 15 years, and that's the only contact we've had. I tried to join the Royal Marine Yacht Club at 14, but only the sons of members were considered. My father. Not really a man for yachts, though we did plan once to buy one and sail wherever the spirit took us, to Dawkey Island, to the inland mysteries of the French canals, though neither of us knew a sail from a bedspread, and still don't. That was why I tried to join the club, to learn how to tack back and forth across Dunleary Harbour as little boats did on chilly spring evenings, aspiring later to race under Hoth or the old sea roads by black rock, white rock or grey stones, the booms of the miniature guns like atom bombs up close on the West Pier, and always a neat housewife touching the tinder and barely standing back. My father and myself our sailing days. So, what a surprise to meet him in Dawson Street last Friday, after years of separation, family troubles keeping us apart. He passed like a retired sea captain with a long white beard, the trim of his coat quite sailor-like, the hint of the South Seas in the sun creases about his eyes, his tentative and nautical hello not sure of his ground, the tilt of the hard earth, as if in the intervening years he had indeed gone off to the Caribbean or rounded the horn nonchalantly enough, and the Royal Marine Yacht Club owed me an apology. And as he hurried on, quite shipshape at sixty-seven, his sea legs not yet attuned to land, it was his neat trousers particularly I noticed, the cut of his jib, the breeze athwart the main. Sebastian Barry with the trousers from his collection, The Pinkening Boy. Four times in 15 years? Mm. It's a poor score, I know. Uh, the last time we met, and I, you know, I have said, I've said that part of writing is singing across the gaps. Uh, even when you're by necessity um, blocked from somebody or there's a great ditch has appeared, you're still shouting across like an old cave person trying to make contact with the progenitor or whatever this person might be. But we met once in an airport. Uh, he was going somewhere, I was going somewhere. And uh, and we spoke like diplomats um, or like priests. I don't know what we were like because we didn't embrace or... We were just talking, and it was very strange and probably very fictional in many ways. And uh, I was in the airport in London, when, uh, and I was probably half an hour off the plane, and I realised that I hadn't looked for him coming off the plane. And I thought, that what a great accusation that was against myself. And then I realised, well, he hadn't looked for me either, and that sometimes there is a rightness, maybe, in that form of separation that you 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 take up the positions that you're able to take up 
that sometimes, you know, you belong to opposing armies. And sometimes you run yourself and your men against the guns. Uh, and sometimes you don't. And, I, you know, for a long time, a child may, may walk bravely up to the mouth of the guns and, you know, with consequent wounds. And then that child probably decides, well, I won't do that anymore. And that, that's part of it. You know, it's a giving up of something. However, I'm very aware, and indeed Dr. Green in the script, Secret Scripture is very aware, that, that to halt a narrative, you know, is a terrible thing. Everything may be reached at length. And, you know, I hope something, some few sentences with, uh, with a proper ending will be reached. I can't imagine what they would be. They're not only unimaginable, they're, I can't even think of how they'd be written down between me and my father, but I, you know, I fervently wish for that. In the meantime, perhaps I write these other sentences. In the meantime, as you might say, with all the meanings of that word mean. Because mm-hmm. your parents separated. Oh, they did. They did. I mean, not so long ago. I mean, it's probably only 15 years ago. And they sold their house and did all those things. Sebastian Barry, much of your work looks at the political troubles of Ireland and, and how the political troubles affect the personal lives of your characters, especially around the time of the Republican movement in the early part of the 20th century, whether it's soldiers who, who fight for the, for the British in, in, in a long, long way, or and even some of these same figures who return to Ireland get caught up in the 1916 Easter uprising. I mean, there, there, it, there's, there's a very strong interplay one character in the secret scripture thinks about all the internecine fighting of the 20th century and wonders how Ireland ever recovered. How would you answer that? Well, I think this is the true victory. It isn't that we became a holy Catholic country. That was impossible anyway, and a thing wrong to wish for. But we have become... Um, I mean, I astonished myself a couple of years ago in Philadelphia, I was doing a reading with John Banville and Colin Tobin, two great figures. Scary to death reading with them. But anyway, I was reading with them. And a lady, it was just after the trouble I'd had with the play I, I talked about, Hinterland, and it was a couple of years after that. And I was, a lady asked me, said, well, you've written about your country, just slightly similar to what you've just asked me. And she said, well, how do you feel about your country? And I said, without thinking, I said, I love my country which is a slightly mad thing to say, but there it was. Well, there was a great snort from John behind me, quite rightly, being a more sardonic character. And he was, and of course the audience applauded and it all got a bit strange for a moment. Um, but in, nevertheless, and he said, actually John said, if I stood up and said, I love my mother, I'd get the same response. So he made a wonderful joke about it and it was, it was interesting. But I, th- I made that connection between mother and country immediately and later and thought about that. Ireland has become a place that that you you can simply... I mean, we're, we you know, fast history, we now have enormous economic difficulties as of this week, as of the rest of the world. It doesn't know what I'm talking about. But having tried to add a few more adjectives and having feel, felt less resistance than I thought, because people sometimes, if they read the books, they do read them with a sort of hunger to have these stories back. So therefore, I feel I'm edged a little closer to citizenship. 
by hook or by crook, even by stealth and thievery. And I look where I live and I look how my country treats me generally and, how, you know, we're, we're allowed to live in Ireland. Uh, writers are not taxed. It's possible to bring up your children from books and plays. These are all miracles to me. And I have to conclude that I love my country. And it is a country infinitely worthy of, of that love. And yet I know it's an accidental country. If by chance I had been born, like my mother, in a ship off the Rock of Gibraltar, would I not have to love that patch of sea? Of course. It's not that Ireland is this place that is particularly worthy of love. But we have achieved something in Ireland. I don't know how we did it. But we finally have become a sort of grown-up country, which is a tremendous victory. Not the victory we sought, or people sought, or thought was good. A different sort of victory. The best sort of victory, a sort of accidental human victory. And we have seen magical events in Ireland, you know, since 1994, you know, with the Good Friday Agreement. All these things were impossibilities. No one can state that often enough, that peace in Ireland was never possible. It was never going to be achievable, like peace in the Middle East may seem now. But something happened, something got in upon the people who were dealing with it, and this resulted. And we should always, I mean, we should always look at that dance of peace with eyes of amazement, and never eyes of indifference or, or habitude. That's a lovely note to end on, and so I, I, I want to thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to talk to you. It's been great. Thank you. It was joy talking to you. Sebastian Barry in Dublin in 2008. The Secret Scripture and many of his other books are available in paperback from Penguin. His latest novel, Old God's Time, is long-listed for this year's Booker Prize. The shortlist will be announced later this week. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. Technical operations by Emily Chiarvezio. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, fiction writer Yin Gu named one of China's future literary masters. Her 2020 novel, translated as Strange Beasts of China, is a mysterious imaginative tale. Recently, she made her English-language debut with a new collection of stories called Elsewhere. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.